Hello and welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast, produced in partnership with the A.B. Corcor Foundation for Mental Health. I'm Terry, the creator and co-host of this podcast. I've lived with depression most of my life, and I know how easy it can be to feel all alone in the experience. I'm not alone, and you aren't either. And I'm Dr. Anita Sands, a licensed clinical psychologist and life coach with a number of my own diagnoses, all of which bring a certain amount of anxiety and depression along with them. There is great power in shared experiences. We share our own as we engage in intimate and candid conversations with our weekly guests, exploring different perspectives on and experiences with depression. We keep it real because depression is real. We keep it hopeful because there truly is hope in spite of what depression tells you. Hi, Terry. Hello, Anita. So one of the reasons we started this podcast back in 2017 is because we know there are people around the globe who are feeling and thinking things they don't understand and certainly haven't named. And when we don't realize that the things we're experiencing are symptoms of a common disorder, we take them on as being just us, flaws in us, proof that we alone are unable to cope with life like everyone else seems to do with ease. Today's guest, Michelle, knew something was wrong. She repeatedly asked for help as a teenager, but since she was a high achiever, the adults and professionals in her life dismissed her struggles as side effects of her experience as a Korean immigrant, high stress, teen drama, or even an overly active imagination. As a result, for more than 20 years, Michelle Yang and her family kept her depression and bipolar disorder secret, while wondering, even doubting, that a full and successful life would even be an option for her. But Michelle has proven that it is. And she's made a commitment to spread that message and to speak loudly and clearly about her experiences so that others will not have to go through what she has. We met and interviewed Michelle a few years back after reading her Huffington Post article entitled, My Mental Illness Did Not Prevent Me From Succeeding, But the Stigma Nearly Did. Here now is Michelle Yang giving her voice to depression. So let's start at the beginning, Michelle, and tell me how old you were when you started having what you now know were symptoms. You know, that's hard to say, I think, because I remember having trouble sleeping really young. And I now as an adult, knowing what I know, wonder if that's like signs that I was neuroatypical, right? Mm -hmm. Um but really, it was my teenage years, like most people, um, when I had prolonged depression and severe anxiety, uh, and I didn't really have the word for things, right? Yeah. And what was it like? How did it manifest? So I immigrated when I was nine from Korea, and uh, my family, we none of us had ever been to the West. We'd never left, you know our region, Korea and Taiwan, um, beforehand. And so it was a huge leap of faith. My parents yeah. didn't speak English. None of us spoke English. And so, you know, we don't often talk about the trauma of immigration, even in the best of circumstances. But yeah, that was a really traumatic move for us. 
In addition to culture shock for the whole family, Michelle's parents underwent drastic career changes, which also added to the stress in Michelle's life. My parents are both um, college educated. My father was a really well-respected, like higher ranking school official in our close-knit community. And so once we immigrated, he became the lowest ranking cook in the kitchen, in Chinese kitchens, because he didn't speak the language. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom in, back in Korea, but in the States, she became a bus girl because that's the only thing she could do, right, without speaking English. Um, and my brother and I, my brother was six, I was nine. We were home alone a lot for the first time, you know, and uh, it was, yeah, it was really tough. Michelle's parents, with family help, were eventually able to buy what she calls a small takeout joint, where she started working at age 12. By then, after just three years of moving to the United States, she was the best English speaker in the family, which brought a lot of responsibilities not typically placed on preteen shoulders. Things like handling landlord and billing disputes and translating at doctor's appointments. My parents put on a lot of pressure intentional or not and they also didn't trust the system and so that was a uh you know not a healthy combination so under all the pressure i became depressed depression was just one of the disorders that challenged michelle and their symptoms were more pronounced in relation to her schooling I was an A student. I was like the best student. Yeah, I was so nervous about every test and project. And um, so I would go like weeks without sleep. And so in high school, I started having, you know, once it would go for a period of being really bad, having um, some like manic episode with uh, psychotic uh, tendencies where I would hear, I would think that the radio was talking to me, you know, that the DJ was actually talking to me. It was about me, that movies were about me, like, and I would just, yeah, be in this place. It sounds so scary. Yeah, it was terrifying. Terrifying during the episodes, when she had little ability to differentiate between reality and symptoms. But it was also pretty scary after they had passed. There was always inevitably a realization of, oh my God, what did I do? And the shame that washed over, the crushing shame, you know, and you're a, you're a high schooler where image is everything, where how you see yourself, you think you care so much about what other people think. And I just, it was just uh, like, yeah, I felt like I couldn't get up, right? So, it, and it was just, it, it just, this just cycled, you know? And what kind of behaviors, you want to give me just a little example, were you afraid that other people and classmates would notice and judge you by? But like, so, so I think for the most part, people didn't really understand what's going on either, right. that what was going on in my head, that I, what I thought was going on. But under, this, under these circumstances, I would do weird things that were out of character. Like when I was taking a final, instead of taking this final, I doodled all over it about this boy that I had a crush on, <laughs> oh, wow. you know, and I wrote, I would write this gibberish like all over the paper. I would draw pictures. Yeah. And, and I turn it in, I turned it in and she would be like, she sat me down afterwards. Like, you know, are you okay? Like, is this. So instead of seeing that as an opportunity to really get into what was going on in Michelle's mind, 
the teacher let her retake the test. That's something we will revisit in next week's episode. I would go through a period of like, how do I recover from this? I'm so humiliated. There's so much shame. Like, no one will ever, no one will ever. Yet, it was always worse in my own head, or people were just like too caught up in my, their lives to mm-hmm. notice it that much, or because I maintained good grades, that they just kind of excused a lot of the behavior or just swept it under the rug, like, oh, um, Michelle's going to be different because her families are immigrants. And so there was a lot kind of um, swept under like cultural differences. So the schools thought that your manic behaviors were just the result of cultural differences. What did you think they were? I didn't know, right? I was so scared. I was confused. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I was really ashamed, like I, like I mentioned. Um, yeah, I knew that I was depressed because that's, I think, really easy to identify. And it, this was the 90s, right? The grunge, the grunge period where every, but every teenager walked around saying, I'm really depressed, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so I didn't know why I was different. And the, like, the anxiety of it, uh, all I could call it was fear. The panic like that I felt before a book report was due, before a final exam, even though I seriously graduated like number two in my class, yet I was so terrified. And um, and of course, now I know that is anxiety, like a severe anxiety, probably panic attacks. But I didn't um, I didn't have the words to describe. I would just say to my parents, I'd say mom, I'm scared, like dad, I'm so scared that I, I couldn't sleep because I was so scared. In that fearful place, Michelle knew something was really wrong and that she needed help. And while you might look at that situation and think, oh, how lucky for a self-conscious teenager to get a pass on her strange behaviors, for her, it was far from a helpful thing. Yes, it absolutely prevented me from accessing help. Yeah, and I begged my parents for help. Um, because I, I took a psychology class in high school. And actually, that high school teacher lived with bipolar disorder. And of course, at the time, I did not know. I had not awareness at all that, that I might have what she has. You know, because everybody's symptoms can look very different. And my, and my, my symptoms were different from her. To be clear, we are talking about a teenager in a high school class trying to diagnose her own mental illness. Because that was actually her best available option. It helped me name things, and I was like, I think I have this. I think I have this. While that knowledge and those names empowered Michelle, they scared the hell out of her parents. But I did. I asked my parents to take me to see someone for help, and they were terrified of it because they thought it would end up on my permanent record, quote-unquote. They just believed in that there was a permanent record tracking everybody. And that that would mean I would not get into college if there was any record of me anywhere, (laughs) having Mm -hmm. seen a therapist of any kind, which is kind of a really silly idea now. But it was a really dire situation for them. Like they knew I needed help, but they were afraid. That's how powerful the stigma was. And speaking to how powerful the stigma was, I just want to read a little snippet from Michelle's Huffington Post article. So this is her description of the first time that her family finally conceded and brought her to a professional for evaluation. 
My father drove us eight hours across state lines for a secret appointment in the dark of the night. I was 16 years old when my symptoms could no longer be shrouded in denial. We arrived at the office of a handsome family doctor, the brother of a trusted friend, then waited until dark for the clinic to close so that we could speak with him alone and off the record. This appointment needed to be in secret. Finally, given the chance to talk to a professional, I detailed everything. I was so grateful to finally get help. Afterward, the doctor called my father back into the exam room and told him exactly what he wanted to hear. Your daughter is fine. She just has an overactive imagination. I know. I do not know how she managed to, to deal with that at that age and under those circumstances. That betrayal of, of, of this, this medical professional must have just been heartbreaking. That drive back, that eight-hour drive back, just thinking, I'm never going to get help. Right. When she, had, when she had the hope, here, finally, mm-hmm. finally, I can get the help that I need. Whew. But I think it, you know, I think it highlights, especially, you know, not just for Michelle's family, but I think for a lot of families, how hard it is to come to terms with the fact that your child is really, really struggling. And you don't want to admit it. You don't want to see it. Not because you don't love your children. Mm-hmm. But I think the idea that there's something that not okay, that they're struggling that much, that they're hurting that much, that something could be wrong, just creates such a blind spot. And all kinds of bad things can happen with, you know, a blind spot that can just get really big like that. And as we'll hear in next week's episode, it was four more years after that appointment that she was able to get medical attention and a diagnosis. And of course, I guess it Mm -hmm. was sort of in a course, given these circumstances, that she had to be in a crisis state before that happened. And she will share about that next week. But again, we always want to say, the reason we have the second episodes is to show the change. And once she was Mm -hmm. diagnosed, once she was treated, she is amazing. She is amazing. I'm sure she has challenges in her life. We all do. and, And mental health related as well. But she is thriving just thriving. She's gotten her her college degree. She's Mm -hmm. gotten her MBA. None of that was easy. She's a mother. She's Mm -hmm. a wife. She is happy. So I just want to put that out there as real hope, not false hope, as real hope that um, even with that, oh my gosh, what a a set of circumstances. To be able to come from that and... um And even not getting the timely help, you know, right when it would have been (laughs) the best Mm -hmm. to still know that you can, you can come through this and you can, you can get what you need. You can finally get that diagnosis. That's so important. So we will be back next week hearing the second part of Michelle's story. We truly hope that our podcast brings a little more understanding helps you better articulate and reflect on your own experience with depression or better understand how to support someone else who is struggling. If this episode has been of comfort or value to you, know that there are hundreds of others like it in our archive, which you can easily find at our website, givingvoicetodepression.com. And remember, if you're struggling, speak up, even if it's hard. If someone else is struggling, take the time to listen 